Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. Uh, I'm Wendy Luger, the university librarian here at Minnesota. And it's wonderful to see so many of you for the ninth annual Pancake Poetry event. It seems only fitting to start with a poem. Dear Calendar, why are you lying? You claim that it's spring, but I'm not buying. We've had one lovely day, but now snow's on the way. You've betrayed us, there's just no denying. I didn't write that. <laughs> but I do endorse the sentiment, and I'm guessing all of you do too. This annual gathering uh, was actually uh, begun informally years ago by Marcia Pancake, uh, who planned a special reading each year during uh, April National Poetry Month. And when she retired, we decided to continue the tradition and name the series in her honor. And Marcia, who is here uh, over there, <laughs> uh, thank you for leading the way. And I also want to thank Malika Grant, who is somewhere way back there, uh, our librarian for English, African, and African American Studies, who organized this evening's event. So our program today is sponsored by the Friends of the Libraries as part of its Friends Forum uh, series for Curious Minds. And for those of you who are friends here, we thank you for your commitment. So National Poetry Month has an interesting genesis. It was inspired by the success of Black History Month in February and Women's History Month in March. And in the mid-90s, the Academy of American Poets convened a group of publishers, booksellers, librarians, and poets and teachers to discuss launching a similar month-long holiday to celebrate poetry. Because after all, poetry predates literacy, so it seems only fitting to acknowledge the importance of poetry in our culture. And in April 1996, National Poetry Month was established. Now today's honored poet, Margaret Hasse, joins a long list of stellar Minnesota pancake poets. We have Jim Lenfesty, Louis Jenkins, Hyde Erdrich, Ed Bach Lee, Joyce Sutphin, Michael Dennis Brown, Ray Gonzalez, and Baufi. A number of them are here tonight, too. And we're honored that Margaret's archives are now here in Anderson Library. They were included in a year-long grant-funded project to increase access to these premier literary collections in our Upper Midwest Literary Archive. And these also include papers from Robert Bly, Bill Holm, Patricia Hampel, Milkweed Edition, and several others. The project was funded by the State of Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Now, Margaret is a poet, a teacher, a mentor and an arts consultant. Her career spans four decades. Her poetry was frequently featured on National Public Radio's Writer's Almanac and in many publications. And two of her collections were finalists for the Minnesota Book Award, and one of them the winner of an award from the Midwest Independent Publishers Association. She's received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Minnesota State Arts Board, McKnight Foundation, among others. And today she will be reading selections from each of her five collections. And her first book, Stars Above, Stars Below, was formerly out of print, 
but just this week it's been reissued by Noden Press to coincide with this event. And finally, Walt Whitman once said, to have great poets, there must be great audiences. And it's evident today that was right. So please welcome Margaret Hassey. Wendy, thank you for that fine introduction. Um, I'm really grateful to you and to the university, um, a, an award-winning library here um, for this series and for all that you do for writers and poetry. Um, for the curators and the archivists who work here in this institution, I just have loved working with them. Um, I'm grateful that they cooked up this wonderful project called Three Prairie Poets in a Press, and they were very alliterative when they did it um, and got it funded. And uh, of course, um, I, I want to add my thanks to Marcia Pancake, even though I haven't met her yet, but I will today, for um, this delicious annual reading event uh, in her name. Um, Wendy, thinking about today, I watched a lot of YouTube videos uh, of, of, of past pancake readings. I have been here several times, but not to all of them. And I, you always seem to start things out by saying, welcome to a warm spring day. <laughs> and I thought, uh, we didn't get warm weather, but none of you is a fair weather friend. You are all here. I'm very grateful to you for coming. And maybe tonight, if we get rain, it'll be good for the earth. Um, as Wendy said, my presentation today, my reading, is a retrospective. I'm going to read from my five books from the oldest to the most recent book. Um, and to get the reading started, though, before I start looking at those books, I'm going to read a poem that addresses the theme of retrospective. It's a poem about looking backwards by living backwards. Uh, and it's called Life in Reverse. Life in Reverse is an uncharacteristically long poem for me. Don't worry, it's not an epic, but it does run, um, most of my pages, standard poems are a page or, or, or less, um, but this is a few pages long. Um, life in Reverse. What if life were designed for us to arrive when we're ancient and then grow younger? That might be a better plan. If we start out as elders in our 90s or 80s and change toward youth, when our knees start working again like well-oiled latches to a gate, we don't protest gray hair or difficult digging in the rag bag of memory for the right word. When we become 70 years old, we're elated that our bodies are as spry as they are, for we've passed down from decrepitude. We know what old, old age wrought, disabilities, diapers, disease, that's over now, and we look forward to decades of vitality. We enter our 60s, that marvelous epoch of activity when we are now known for something, when people see us as fluid, not finished with our changes. The driver's license we relinquished, back in our pockets. We uh, take only occasional naps, are into long walks and good works and road trips. We have decent teeth and most foods agree with us. 
Our 50s, it's a really dreamy time. Love making is not an effort anymore. Our flesh, though somewhat loose, is more elastic than it used to be. We cherish the work we do, whatever it is. We didn't get to do these things back when we were 80. When stuck on the freeway, we sing along to the radio. When we grow back to 40, we wear tighter, shorter clothes. We can't get enough of color and travel. As we build new rooms in our life, we work on being generous because we recall old age when we appreciated visitors at the nursing home, even if they were the sons of the neighbor's son. 30, we're ecstatically 30, even with our struggles. Maybe the marriage isn't ideal, and we have to move a few times, but it's all experience, experience, and we thrive on our power to learn. In our 20s, we look down at our bodies, amazed how they shine with youth, the flesh springy and firm like a forest floor under pine trees. We like sex outside or on a table. We welcome work and opportunities. Next comes adolescence the best and the worst of times, because we felt so much and we knew so little. But our past maturity now gives us ballast. Now it's only the best of times. We consistently make great decisions. We learn to play that flute. We show kindness to ourselves and our parents. We are avid about education. We use birth control and enjoy in all ways our brief and splendid blooming. When we get into grade school, the great sex we used to have when we were older is now yucky to even think about. <laughs> Our parents tower over us. Candy tastes delicious. Playing kickball all afternoon, what could be better? We love our mother's voice, murmuring her perfume, the way stars are brighter than they've ever been. We can fall asleep anywhere opening our hearts to dream, and we wake up smaller, believing in stories where the animals talk. And then we are losing language, but playing with all the toes on our feet. And someone is usually holding us, and it feels so good to suck. When we slide into the birth canal, there's an agreeable sensation of being drawn from a place big and bright that made us cry into a cozy padded cave where we rest with our ears pressed to the pulse of the universe. Then we are stilled with a lullaby before lullabies had sound. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so we're in a library together, sitting above thousands of books below us in the archives, memorabilia on the shelves. I don't know if you've ever taken a tour, but it's a really worthwhile thing to do, to go down into the, do we call them the caverns? Into the caverns. Um, because this is a bookish place, I decided for this pancake reading to choose a very few book images to, of covers of books to show you. Um, it's part of the theme of retrospection. Um, when I was growing up in a very small town in South Dakota, we had in our family a myriad of books, and we also had a very good Carnegie library downtown. 
Among the many books that inspired me to become a writer, I want to show you the covers of just four of them in a, and offer the invitation to you all to think of when poetry or literature first ignited something in you. What particular books were touchstones for you? Um, so if this works well, and wonderful Kate um, has helped me set up um, a little uh, uh, image, a few images here. There it is. That's the image. Um, my mother um, read a great deal of poetry, often out loud, and she wrote poetry. And she uh, foresaw, I think, um, a decade that was coming two uh, decades later, where poets in the schools uh, had the philosophy that if you pay attention to young children, listen to their words and their writing, they will come into language in a different and new way. Um, so this is a book, a notebook, that was begun when I was five years old by my mother, who when I came home from kindergarten or first grade before I could write, would say, do you have any poems or stories, and would write them down. And so by the time I was eight years old, I had already, then I was a writer, I didn't have to dictate to my mother, um, I was keeping notebooks and journals, which uh, was something she also did. And that notebook and journal habit has stayed with me, um, well, all my life. Um, I'm um, 60 years and 100 journals or notebooks into that life of, of kind of paying attention, of noticing what's happening to you. Um, so, oh, and the, my notebooks are always the places where my poems get their first kind of inkling of that they might become a poem. So this is the, um, uh, a book that I received um, and when I was nine years old in grade school, The Golden Treasury of Poetry. We had many poetry anthologies and collections in our house, and it was in this book <laughs> that I first really found Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman and Elizabeth Bishop and hungered for more. So this book is, um, you, as you can see, um, a copy of Black Elk Speaks, which I read in my teens. Writers always seem to come from someplace far away. They didn't seem to come from where I lived in South Dakota. But this book was the first book that I read that I realized this man was from South Dakota. And the poet who wrote down uh, the vision, John G. Neihart, was from our neighboring state of uh, Nebraska. And to this day, books about the Great Plains and, and South Dakota and the prairies, I, I just gravitate towards those kind of books. They have a pull for me. I discovered Virginia Woolf and feminism at about the same time when I was in college in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I took to heart Wolf's advice about how a woman can sustain a writing life, not only reading, study, practice, <laughs> but having a room of her own to write in. And soon after uh, graduating from college, I moved to the Twin Cities, which was 1973. And there were many organizations that could buoy up a writer and keep her on the path. The Loft Literary Center was one of those just coming into being in the, uh, 1973. Women poets of the Twin Cities meant a great deal to me. And um, the poets in the schools as well, where Kate Green and I were the first women poets um, hired to work in that program. And I'm so grateful to all the great arts administrators who uh, wor worked on those programs and made them happen. 
So when I got a book of my own, this was my first book in 1984. It's um, was published by um, New Rivers Press and was the winner of the Minnesota Voices competition. Um, this is the cover of that book. And as you can see, it's uh, seen somewhere. I mean, it's 36 uh, years old now, 34 years old now, uh, three decades um, ago. Uh, and two decades ago, it uh, fell into, um, it went out of print um, when uh, the press moved up to Fargo. And I was so lucky that my current publisher, Noden Press, brought it back into print after that long time. Um, I've always loved this painting by Mike Lynch. Uh, the house with one light on, to me, suggests a person up late reading or writing. And I always think of Virginia Woolf, who talked about creativity being the lamp in the spine. The poems in this book, and now I'm going to have uh, two or three poems from each of the books to read to you. Um, these poems are ones about coming of age, poems about the natural world, pleasures and repressions of life in a small town, and a loss that made me feel as if I knew for sure what Dylan Thomas meant when he wrote, after the first death, there is no other. Being still. She's a quiet clapper in the bell of the prairie, a girl who likes to be alone. Today, she's hiked four miles down ravines' low, cool blueness. Bending under barbed wires, she's in grass fields at the edge of the Great Plains. Wise to openness, she finds it a familiar place. Her clothes swell like wheat bread. When she returns to her parents' house, the foxtails and burrs have come home too. The plants seem intent on living in new ground. She's the carrier. Carrier is a precision learned in summer's biology class. She likes to think of ripening seeds, a cargo inside the bellies of flying birds, birds like red-winged blackbirds who skim the air and land, alert on their cattail stalks. They allow her a silent manner. They go about their red-winged business of crying to each other, dipping their beaks into the swampy stand of ditch water, full of the phantom of green. The stiller she is, the more everything moves in the immense vocabulary of being. Trying to save ourselves. We're in the bottom of the swimming pool in September after they've pulled the plug. Now the only blue is paint loose in large patches like eczema and Craig Kaiser is calling my name from over in the deep end. Boys' soft tongues, hard hands begged us to let go, and our bodies wanted to shout back, swimming over our heads. But in 1965, the campaign on the side of not letting go was tremendous. Our mothers enlisted their large words, speaking of menstruation and marital bonds, of brassieres worn like life jackets, making all things more formal so that they belong not to us, but to those small town hens who cackled over our virginity. In school, the film for girls only 
confirmed our bodies would betray us, our sins balloon and live forever, born out of control, the unwanted ghost, a face lost to the family album. Some of the boys learned this too, peeking through slices of light that fell into the black room where we sat, hot packages under wraps. <laughs> my mother's lullaby. When my mother, smelling of milk and bread, brushes the long robe of her hair, the vine spring roses. We wake in a white bed floating with feather pillows. Morning patterns her face. She curls me in her arms. She is a seashell, pale and full of song. And now I come to tuck my little mother into bed. I am too young to be empty-armed, and the weeds in my throat will not let me sing lullabies. Waiting has teeth in it. My mother smiles at me and wraps around herself. I won't see her cry. Her wheat body does not even shake. She will not know how echoes return. Silent tears are turquoise peacock feathers which tickle, and the hyena in me laughs. It's crazy, crazy. And my mother on her thin shelved bed hears the dogs move restlessly. There is a clack of their nails on linoleum. She knows they have come for her. She whimpers, they whimper. There will be no one to tell me what I was like when I was a child. Um, these early poems that I wrote when I was in my 20s, um, I think continue to be, although the content has changed, I think the style has stayed the same. I remember um, I wrote down something a reviewer wrote about that time saying, Hassie's voice uses a lyrical eye tethered to a narrative. She has the eye for visual images, and her poems always feel personal even when the situation or attitude may be partially or wholly imagined. <laughs> um, so the content, as I say, changed, but when I've read all of my poems again recently for this retrospective, I, I felt that some of the style didn't, was set at that point. Um, this, the next book that I'll read poems from is uh, In a Sheep's Eye Darling. And this book is from Milkweed Editions. It was winner of a contest called the Lakes and Prairies Competition. The designer of this cover was Randy Scholes, who was, is a Minnesota artist and was co-founder with Emily Bookwald of Milkweed Editions. Here the subject matter is now um, the body, a love affair, travel, and, and the continued ache, I suppose one would say, of a great loss. In a Sheepside Darling. For you, Cindy Gehrig. <laughs> In a Sheepside Darling. All day in biology class, he'd been looking hard at everything put in front of him on the counter, as if he were starving for these sights. A tree frog's beating heart, lichen from a tree, swamp water's industrious community, even wax from his ear under a magnifying glass made him bend lower, awed at the gunk his body produces. If this is what we slough off, how amazing attached cells must be, he thought, and carefully scraped some from inside his cheek. 
The cells were blurred, like a smudged charcoal drawing, just the way he imagined cheek cells to be, not the precision of liver, not brain. He knew he didn't know much about this and was probably wrong, but he loved his own excitement as if he were the first person to open another in an operation and discover all those organs under a slipcover of fascia like tender offspring. All this looking set him up to be stunned by the eye, and he stared back at that big dismembered thing, the way it sat in its socket like a pearl in a soft oyster, like an oiled see-through marble. The cornea, tiny and perfect in its convexity, and the lens, the way it flattened and thickened in the center, white irregular filaments running through it, as if some sight shattered inside or some sight held, all sewn up. The teacher thought it unlikely his wife would share his thrill, but let him carry the eye home in his backpack in the baggie left over from lunch. And the two bent over it in the bright fluorescence of kitchen and noticed the irrigation system of blood vessels and the soggy iris and the cornea and talked about what they could see being only the tiniest part of the eye and the eye only a small part of the sheep and the sheep a small part of the farm and the earth and the universe and they went to bed too odd to have sex. <laughs> that night he dreamed of the great grass of sheep fields the way it looked to the sheep who stuck her head into it seeking a particular blade and the color green welled up inside him like tears and he woke. Seamstress, seamstress, you give me your pants to repair. You who haven't been my lover for a long time. I had nothing to do with the pants being torn for it was not from feeding you too much or too little. Not for a project on my roof you sacrificed the seam it was not in the haste of sexual play with me, nor in any way I saw or knew. What have you been doing these days? <laughs> we have so much to talk about. Where these pants went when I wasn't with them, whom they met, where they were washed, what hour of the night they were taken off, and where they were left when you went to bed. Here is my hand. Here is the other. I take your pants with your body absent from them, and I still repair the rents. Here is my head bent over the tear and the fingers all together in one organization. The frenzied end of the thread finally licked into submission. My eyes thread the needle first, then the thumb and index follow suit. I say nothing while I, while I work. You too sit with mouth pursed as if sewn that way. My lips are chapped, feel like the edges of cotton pulled by hand, but I am torn up by happiness at being used, and this is a rip I don't know what to do with. Um, going on alone, going on alone in the great conversation. Mother, you used to say that old was just going on. No special feeling except of surprise in the mirror. You said dead was a great conversation, continued. With the stars, I wondered, with the living, with dreamers taken up in sex or death. 
Mother, the last time I saw you was last night, though you have been dead ten years. Like fire in a paper, your face flamed. Each line and hair, both lips and hands, coveted in their sweet perfection. Your only fault, you didn't stay long enough. I want to talk with you. With luck, your hands would pet my hair, which can never be touched enough. With time, I could have smelled your yellow perfume, the dry flower of makeup. Instead, after a glimpse of you, I was like a child on the green grass in a sputter of tulips, the parent departing in the big black car. I cry after it, come back, take me with you, me go along, me go on alone. Much later, when I am 70, your age when you died, mother, I'll be your twin in the mirror. We will both be wearing lavender, absurd Easter hats and smiles because we have faith in what is new and what is given, because we loved reading out loud, each word a new penny dropped in a jar, because we loved walking, because we have kneeled at each other's sick beds and you passed on the little secret notes and gene codes, these bow legs from you, these valentine eyes, this sentimental breathing, because we are each a word in a great conversation, and the word is good. Milk and Tides. Um, the last book came out in 2008 that I showed you um, with uh, Randy Skoll's drawing, uh, artwork on it, and this one came out exactly 20 years later, a gap in my publishing career, shall we say. Um, uh, uh, but Randy Scholes also did this particular um, artwork. Um, that 20 years was the generation that um, I spent um, getting the next generation of my family raised, uh, my sons, and I rarely sent out poems to be published. But remember those notebooks I told you about early on? I kept notes. I just didn't finish poems, but I, I kept notes, drafts of poems, starts and fits and starts. And um, by 20 years after the other book, um, I had a book again. And um, I am so happy that Norton Stillman uh, took a gamble on this book. And my poems came to live in the house of Noden Press. Many of these poems are about motherhood, Yet the prairies reappear. That first poem I read, Life in Reverse, that's from this particular book, Milk and Tides. Um, and although the drawing is by um, uh, Randy Scholes, the cover design of this book and of all the books that follow this, or each book that follows this, is by John Torrin. Does a remarkable job with his book design. And he's right here today, and I'm looking at him. <laughs> um, so, from, um, from Milk and Tides, Water Sign. Two-year-old Charlie loves water, loves the force of water in gutters, pipes, the second hose bought to keep peace between brothers who spray tomatoes with the intensity of firefighters at a five-alarm fire. He loves the sources of water, faucet, penis, rain, spit. He longs like a pilgrim for wet places where his worship is complete submersion. Bathtub, swim pool, lake. 
To praise water, he secludes himself in the bathroom. Ascending a stepping stool to the sink, he opened valves to an endless rush of new pressure in copper pipes. So much water, why not share it? Give it away until it seeps through the floorboards, showers into the kitchen, fills the bowls on the table, flows on the heads of his amazed mother and brother who do not immediately recognize that grace might descend like this inconveniently from a complete enthusiast who needs to be generous with whatever he loves. <laughs> Here comes South Dakota again in the prairies, milk from chickens. The day my son declared with hammerhead certainty that milk comes from chickens was the day I yanked him out of the city and drove west to farm and prairie land. <laughs> like a nail pried from hard wood, he complained from the back seat, missing electronic games and TV. Near the South Dakota border, he saluted a McDonald's as we flew by. I wanted my boy to take a turn lifting barbed wire to slip into open fields, keeping an eye out for the crazy bull. I wanted him to hold a bottle for a lamb, to feel the fierceness of animal hunger, the suck of an animal mouth. I wanted him to sleep out in nights encoded with urgent messages of fireflies, to see the bright planets in alignment overhead, to stand on the graves of his grandparents dead so many years before he was born, and to trace the names etched on granite pillows hard as the last sleep. How else to plant in him the long root of plains grass, help him reach water in drought and know who his family is? Uh, Earth's appetite. Um, the Museum of Modern Art gave Noden Press the right to use this Paul Clay lithograph um, with the charming name of A Guardian Angel Serves a Little Breakfast, which was a delightful name for the content of the book, too, because the poems here are really about luminous qualities of everyday life, honey at breakfast, hiring a window washer, taking a dog for a walk, the pleasure, the deep pleasure of deep friendships. The poems also turn again. Hmm, there's South Dakota, Sharon, coming in again. Um, so, and the past and prairies. Uh, this um, poem is called, How Does the Dog Spend Her Day? How does the dog spend her day? I used to wonder when I was gone eight hours at work, but now I know. Since I lost my job, I find myself following my dog's lead. Wake late, clean myself up, eat some crunchy food, then she and I go for a long walk in the neighborhood, taking inventory of the supply of squirrels, noting wild rabbits so still they advertise themselves as lawn ornaments. I too get my morning and evening news from the air. A human nearby smokes a pipe. The rain will arrive on wind that fells the leaves. The smell of another dog on the telephone pole causes my dog to tremble the way a ringing phone startles me. Sleep rules us within the house and we both drool on our pillows. I will get over this spell, I think. I will answer ads, make calls, but right now I just whistle. My dog comes at a trot to look up at me, 
adoring everything about me. If only she were the head of a company looking for someone to hire. <laughs> and a poem called Truant. Truant. Our high school principal wagged his finger over two manila folders lying on his desk, labeled with our names, my boyfriend and me, called to his office for skipping school. The day before, we ditched Latin and world history to chase shadows of clouds on a motorcycle. We roared down rural roads through the Missouri River bottoms beyond town, wind teasing the hair on our bare heads, empty of review tests and future plans. We stopped on a dirt lane to hear a meadowlark's liquid song and smell the heartbreak blossom of wild plum. Beyond leaning fence posts and barbed wire, a tractor drew straight lines across the field, unfurling its cape of blackbirds. Now, 40 years after that geography lesson in spring, I remember the words of the principal and how right he was in saying, this will become part of your permanent record. <laughs> it did become our permanent records. Um, sweats on those things. Um, this is Between Us, a book that came out in 2016, and the image is called Songbirds, and it's a tile that was designed by Motawi Tile Works and used with permission of Nawal Motawi, who in turn had borrowed this image from the book covers of Percy Bysshe Shelley and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I just love how images will, will keep passing themselves on through their beauty. I was very grateful to have um, her authorization of this and that um, John and Norton both liked it. Um, many of these poems in this book are about the fleet foot of time and aging and love that's between people and, po and also some poems about our present time, about some difficult things that have come between us. Uh, so I read two poems from Between Us. Come home, our sons. Come home, our sons, young drivers. Tell us you're safe, not detained again by police for your dark color, sprocketed hair, and a crime you didn't commit. Maybe your car's the wrong make or rusty in a neighborhood where cars park in garages at night. Once when you saw a SWAT squad car, you remembered Officer Smiley and his dog that did tricks in read aloud books at school. Now as you reach for your license with shaking hands, tension raises the chance something will go wrong. This poem is for you, sons, and for everyone who is afraid, citizens of police, police of citizens. It's for Philando Castile, a school lunch supervisor in an inner city school who memorized children's names and their food allergies. And it's for the policeman who stopped the car with a damaged taillight. After he used his gun, his voice broke like a frightened child's. Come home, sons. Come home to mothers like me, alert at night, waiting for car lights to beam in front of our house, for the car to belong to our sons and our sons to still belong to the world. 
They said one of the themes in this um, recent book um, is um, about aging. So this is called lapses. You probably won't relate to anything in this. Lapses. Sometimes a word is obedient and comes. Good word, good dog. Sometimes the word cowers in a corner. A friend might fill in the blank. Or I mime action that brings laughter. Circling my hands around my waist conjures up belt. Or I invent a description. When I can't recall airbags, I say, the car's exploding pillows. I say, you know those little white barbells? To which my husband says, do you mean Q-tips? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm looking for Q-tips and friends' names and books I read just last month or last night. Memory cleaves to the distant past. It's easy to remember the name of the blonde boy who moved away in third grade and the title of the first movie that made us cry. Like an old horse to its salt lick, the mind ambles to essential nouns, to rain, to apples, to sleep. And this um, book is my, old, my oldest book and my most recently published book. It's kind of come full circle now. Do you remember the image by Mike Lynch at the very beginning? Um, same watercolor, uh, different cover uh, color, and a different designer of the co cover. Um, some new material has been added to this book in the form of a foreword by the poet and my friend Athena Kildegard and an afterward by me. Um, I want to say that Athena was just heroic in writing this um, forward because it was in January, right at the time she was working on the final version of her own beautiful book called Course, and she was working on the launch of that book in sites throughout the state, and teaching and a few other things, uh, mothering, parenting, wifing, um, probably things I can't think of. So many, many, many heartfelt thanks for that. Um, uh, she made time for it, and she made a fine forward. Um, so as I say, come full circle with this book, um, but hope that the circle will get opened again sometime so that there are more books in my future. Um, there's a tradition at the pancake reading of um, letting, letting you have your two cents worth or more um, in the form of comments or questions. And I did save a couple of very short poems to close us out at the end if there are questions. Class? <laughs> Who's sitting in front? <laughs> my sister, <laughs> my husband, <laughs> my sons. <laughs> or comments? Um, uh, when, when, when the reviewer said some things are imagined, some things are from real life, and some things you just borrow from someone else, um, uh, the poets here who use that expression about the belt around her waist, and she knows who she is. <laughs> and I just took it and put it in my poem. I, I don't think she cared because she reviewed this manuscript. So, uh, uh, Michael, please. How is writing different for me now than 34 years ago? Um, I have more, uh, more patience. I have more patience for the poem to come more. It's odd to say that because I feel I'm in a hurry as I grow older and older 
but I have more patience to work on the poem, to let it sit and simmer and stew. And uh, I also know when to, when to quit with a poem and drop it. I mean, drop it. Just, it's done. I'm not done to the world, but done, I can't make that poem work <laughs> and let it go. That's how it's changed for me. Yes, please. He's saying he appreciates, um, thank you very much, the titles of my poems, and you appreciated A Night on the Town. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> um, he's referring to a poem I didn't read today, but um, uh, uh, Garrison Keeler, Mr. Keeler, who's the proprietor owner of the uh, bookstore, um, uh, Common Good Books, runs an annual poetry contest and puts, I think, his own money into it. I'm very grateful for that. I think we poets are very grateful for the, the access that he's um, uh, the audience that he's brought to poetry. At any rate, um, this year uh, I, I won that contest, and um, and you read that poem. Do you, do you go on the website to to read the poem? It's called A Night in the Town, which has an interesting little story. Um, uh, Mr. Keeler uh, came up to me at the reading uh, two weeks ago or so when I read the poem and uh, said to me it almost didn't get chosen as a winner. And I said, oh, really? Whoa, 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 why? <laughs> What's this about? And he said, well, um, you used a child's name. And I, I didn't put it together, and I read the poem in all its wrong glory to the audience, and then went home and kept thinking, what did he mean by that? And called a research or a, a librarian at our public libraries, a research librarian who scooted around and came back, and uh, this, this, this name that I used, Instead of F. Scott Fitzgerald for the statue in downtown St. Paul in the poem, I called him Scotty Fitzgerald. And I couldn't figure out why. I, I thought that was an endearing name. And I knew it, it turned up in the, in the biography about Zelda, his wife. Well, back comes the librarian from his um, cubby or his research uh, uh, site. And he said, the reason you're thinking Scotty would be a good name is that was his daughter's name. So I changed it from Scotty Fitzgerald to the statue downtown St. Paul is F. Scott Fitzgerald. And that's why it, the mistake, I mean, it is a pretty big mistake, is why it didn't, almost didn't pass muster. But um, So use those librarians and thank them every time. They're so great. You. <laughs> Yes, please, Mimi. Um, what are you working on now? Um, I always, Mimi's asking me what I'm working on now. And I've always wanted to write a group of poems, well, as Athena did in course, that are all interrelated in subject matter. And, um, and um, I, I, I've tried that. Uh, uh, I've written a group of poems about Glacier National Park, but they just don't seem to be, some of the poems are good, the, the whole doesn't seem to hold together. So I'm always working on just one poem at a time, <laughs> not, not a collection, just one poem at a time. Yeah. And, and teaching and doing the things that I love to do. Thanks for asking. Yes, Kathy. <laughs> My, <clears throat> how does the comment about the belt and, and the error or whatever 
she's saying um, that she's referring to the mistake I made um, about Scotty um, and wondered if I vetted, you know, vet work and um, people who are experts in, say, a field. Um, and um, usually I do do some research myself, um, and usually I would be taking a poem to a writer's group, and if I'm not smart enough to catch that, usually members of these writing groups are, uh, and that's very helpful. Um, I remember years ago, though, um, and a good editor helps when you get the book together. Uh, with my first book, um, Bill Truesdale was then head of New Rivers Press, and there was a little line in one of my poems about sparrows eating seeds every day one quarter of their weight. And he said, hmm, are you sure that's right? Um, and so he sent me to do more research to make sure it's right. So a good editor will keep you from making the mistakes. I, I was, uh, this poem I happened to write, I heard about the contest, and, um, and Connie Wanick, who's here today too, also won that contest, and did two other writers, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know their names, if they're here today, they could tell me their names. Um, but uh, we both heard about the contest and wrote poems for the contest, and it turned out that was what the judges were kind of looking for. They said, you know, they kind of liked it that people wrote for the contest. And, um, and Mr. Keeler made a little joke saying on some of the poems that were submitted, he could see that somebody had erased Bloomington and put in St. Paul, you know, so. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sure he was joking, but anyway. The, the, so, we, so I didn't have time to vet it is the end of that story, so. Um, well, shall, oh, one, oh, hi, George. <laughs> George. Absolutely, I am, and I'm drawn out there physically as well as, um, as psychologically. He asked if I were drawn to the prairies, um, and Odd, you could you'd ask that right now. I've just come back from three days in my, my part of the prairie, and hope to go in the fall to the Black Hills and the Badlands area, um, a beautiful part of the world. Um, so thank you, yes, I'm still drawn, um, not only to the literature about the prairies, but to the place itself as source material and just as pure beauty and um, so. Well, shall I, um, shall I, um, <clears throat> no, I started with my longest poem, <laughs> and so I'm going to end with my shortest poems, two of them, and they had to be very short because um, one of them uh, was for the contest that stamped poems in the sidewalks of St. Paul, so that had to be very short, five lines or fewer, and then another one was chosen recently by the St. Paul Almanac for a project to put poems and poem posters up on public transportation, and the limit for that was, I believe, 10 lines. So these poems, one's five, and I mean, I pushed it right out to the edge of it, and one's 10. Um, and the, the five-line one that's in St. Paul on the sidewalk stamped in a number of places is called Meadowlark Mending Song, although, interestingly, they don't have names on the poem, names of the poem, nor do they have names of the authors on the poems. You have to go online to, to sleuth that out to suss that out. Um, Meadowlark Mending Song. What hurt you today was taken out of your heart by the meadowlark who slipped the silver needle of her song in and out of the gray day and mended what was torn. And then the other little short poem, which is from Between Us. 
I'll read that, but first I wanted to say thank you again for coming. I really appreciate seeing you all here and the lovely staff and archivists. It's just been great um, to get to know you and um, to meet you and, uh, and to see, see you all here. Um, this is a little poem from Between Us, um, sort of an ars poetica of sorts. Happy day with egg. An urban chicken named Nancy nesting in the bird bath laid an egg today, then walked around the yard with a fluff chest holding high the crown of her red comb, loudly clucking about herself and her marvelous achievement, exactly how I feel when I write a new poem. Tonight at supper, I'll celebrate with a little omelet. <laughs> Margaret, thank you so much. I am such a fan of your work, and you are such a star of the literary world in our community that you have gathered uh, and drawn in an august assemblage of the poetry world here. Um, thank you so much. I am so thrilled that you are our pancake author. You and I go back on many adventures, and um, you didn't read my favorite poem, um, which is the one about sitting on the back stoop after all the guests, or when the family's still there. I love that poem. And I use Margaret's poems all the time to get through life. I'm Margaret Telfer. I'm the other Margaret. Um, and I lead the board of the Friends of the University Libraries, and we put on the Friends Forum, and we are people with curious minds and um, a group of people that you enjoy, and many of you here are friends. If you're not, we would love to have you be a member. It costs $40 and brings you all sorts of benefits. Our next big event is an annual event that we're having, and we have uh, Joe Hodge coming to speak to us, and we would love to have you join us. That's a dinner. That's sort of our big event of the year. But uh, please become a member of the Friends, and um, if you get a chance, uh, come to a First Fridays, which happens the first Friday of every month here at Anderson, and if you haven't had a tour, of the caverns. Be sure to do that. Many of your papers are in there, and many of them maybe should be. So thank you all so much for coming. Please join us for refreshments in the atrium, and Margaret's books are for sale, and I'm sure she'd be happy to sign them. Thank you.